It's, it's a very hard thing to describe, but when you do an action like that in the faith context, you really feel like you're stepping over a line that isn't just a police line. It's like crossing human law into God's law, almost. Mm. That in the same way that all laws are not moral, yeah. you're transgressing an immoral law and going into a realm that's beyond that. Listening to the Religious Socialism Podcast hosted by the DSA, Democratic Socials of America. I'm Sarah New, and on this podcast, I interview leading religious activists and thinkers on socialist politics and faith. Today, we have for you an interview with Rabbi Michael Feinberg, who is the executive director of the Greater New York Labor Religion Coalition. Um, he'll get more into his work and what it means to do multi-faith organizing work. And the interview is super interesting. We'll talk. We talked a lot about what it was like to be a religious activist in the 70s and 60s and what it was like for him to be inspired by many Catholic radical priests like Father Berrigan. Um, and we, we talked a lot about, you know, the history of Jewish socialism starting from the Bund and Eastern Europe and how that inspires him today. And I just want to say that since we've conducted the interview, which was early this month, the Pittsburgh Tree of Life shootings have happened in the synagogue, killing several Jewish members of the synagogue. And even just in the neighborhood I live in, there's been a lot of anti-Semitic vandalism that's happened to a nearby temple that my partner and I sometimes attend Shabbat services in. And it's just been chilling. And it's, it's a bit of a shadow that, as I listen back to the interview now, as an overcasting cloud but it's something that's always sort of been an undercurrent and I wish I'd talked about it with him but that was not what was top of mind when we talked earlier this month but I would recommend for people who are interested in digging a little bit more into anti-semitism and sort of some of the unique characteristics that characterize it to look at download a white paper on this very topic anti-semitism put out by Jews for Racial and Economic Justice can easily find it, I think, on the website. And it's like 40 pages. It's pretty easy read, as it's not, not dense and academic, but it's pretty heavy stuff. I'm pretty much done with it, or almost done, and it's been really helpful for me. So I just want to kind of note that out there, because I know the interview doesn't really touch upon this a ton, so I felt it would be amiss without kind of acknowledging that resource. Regardless, I think I'm very happy to be able to put out and publish this podcast interview in this timing in which I think I'm continually inspired by religious figures like Rabbi Michael Feinberg who sort of really are rooted and grounded in their tradition and yet see it as a resource to sort of transcend any kind of parochial mindset or kind of narrow set of interests to think about like the collective interests in a way that's still grounded in their tradition. And to be honest, I, in my experience, it seems like Jewish religious figures and Jewish activists seem to do it the best or the most consistently. And I think Rabbi Michael Feinberg is a, is a kind of prime exemplar of that. So hope you enjoy listening to the interview. Thank you so much for coming over to court this podcast, Rabbi Michael Feinberg. I know you prefer to go by Michael, so I just want to state your full name so people know. Sure. 
tell us a little bit more. I know you're the executive director in of the Greater New York Labor Religion Coalition. Tell us a bit more about that, maybe to begin with. Okay, well, all of my work as an adult and as a rabbi has been in the context of doing organizing, yeah. most of it in a multi-faith setting, some at one point in a Jewish organization, but for the last 20 years, I've been executive director of the Greater New York Labor Religion Coalition, which is a multi-faith worker rights and economic justice advocacy organization. And the purpose of it is to bring together into a partnership the local labor movement and the faith community on a diverse basis to build power for worker rights and um, worker justice specific campaigns here in New York City. Do you use the word multi-faith deliberately as opposed to interfaith or are those interchangeable for you? Um, I, I do use it intentionally. Interfaith to me is a sort, it's just a resonance of an older idea of, you know, interfaith dialogue mm. where you're telling me about your theology and I'm doing this. That's not what we're about. Um, we're about different faith traditions coming together on a shared project, political project, uh, economic project, a social justice project. And it's multi-faith because we're a multi-faith city and a multi-faith society. It's not Judeo-Christian. It never was, mm -hmm. but it certainly isn't now. And um, it's important to honor and recognize the diversity. And I think multi-faith captures that. Yeah, the image I almost get of interfaith is like it all kind of blends together into like some sort of weird stew as well, opposed to like a multi-course meal perhaps something like that that that's the challenge of how do you really tap the power of a faith tradition and let them speak in their own language and with their own symbols and terms and yet make room for other faiths and that's still i think a work in progress for most of our multi-faith organizations because for some more than others they're more used to thinking in exclusive terms. Mm. So it, it requires a, a more radical paradigm shift to let in the fact that, hey, there's all these other religious traditions and their communities are as truth-based, whatever that means, as my own. Are there particular incidents or stories you recall where you, you find that clash of that tension reveals itself most at yeah. Yeah. Well, I've worked in the last few years with um, some groupings that have been principally around economic justice. Some a few years ago, it was about a living wage campaign in New York, and that was led, interestingly, largely by evangelical and Pentecostal communities because a lot of their people are on the front lines of these low wage issues. Um, and for a lot of them, I think it was the first time, honestly, that they'd worked not only with Jews and Muslims, but with other Christians, like <laughs> non-evangelical mainline were, Protestants were these, and Catholics. Just, and Just to clarify, were these evangelical churches white or Latin? Largely Latino Latin, okay. and black Pentecostal. Okay. Yeah. Um, it's, so it's more the case with the Latino evangelical, I think, it's not that they've operated in a complete bubble. Nobody does in a diverse city. But the intensity of their faith community and their theology is such that I think for them it was more of a, and still is an um, ongoing process. It is for all of us a process of how, how do you be multi-faith, empower each faith, 
but also still be accessible. So not speak in a language that excludes other faith traditions, but brings them in. But as you say, not, you don't want to be like a Hallmark card, you know, uh, kumbaya, where, you know, every faith is the same and let's all be nice together because that, that actually um, cuts the traditions off from their deepest sources of power and authenticity. Yeah. So I circle back a little bit to the Living Wage campaign. What was it like, I guess, for these Latinx evangelical churches to start to engage? What was maybe were there missteps in the beginning, and then you had to kind of course correct a little bit, or how did it play well, out? Well, um, it was to some extent a union-led campaign, but they very early on realized, and it was to their credit that the voice of the faith community could speak with a moral urgency and a moral intensity to the importance of the issue that the labor movement on its own could not do. Mm. So they actually hired faith-rooted organizers to go out into their own communities to bring congregations and faith leaders into this campaign. And some of them were specifically Latino evangelicals, some African-American Pentecostals, a mix, and Jews, uh, sort of an odd assortment. But um, I think the fact that we were so focused on the one specific goal of passing the living wage legislation helped us over whatever obstacles there might have been. It wasn't just us all floundering in a room like, so now what do we do? We Mm -hmm. had a very clear goal and a clear process and I think that cleared the way for what could have been possible misunderstandings. Or, but it, it still comes up, people praying in language that as a Jew I can't join in, people using theological concepts or terms that don't work for a lot of other faith traditions. I think it's just a question of time and exposure and um, consciousness raising. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, it brings me back to some of my memories of like interfaith conversations in college. And I was raised in an evangelical tradition, oh. so I, I very much understand the sort of framework. Right. This very universalizing way of thinking about yes. your religion and your truth. I want to pick up on something you said about how the the union, which union was it that it was working was on this? It was the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union, which is now in part of the uh, United Food and Commercial Workers Union. Okay. And that's a very progressive union, and they were very foresighted to do this campaign and, again, to partner with the faith community. Some unions are much more short-term and instrumental in their relationships to the faith community, but Mm. this was, I think, a much more visionary partnership. I'd love to get into the history of labor and religion, but specifically, you talked about how uh, people, organizers within the Mm. union, realize that the religious community would have you mentioned like a moral sort of urgent voice why do you do you feel religious communities have some sort of like special access to a moral voice like why why don't you see perhaps other communities accessing uh moral language as much perhaps um i certainly wouldn't say that others don't i'm I'm, Uh, I'm a member of dsa and i I certainly think that political traditions at least progressive ones speak with a moral Mm-hmm. authority and a moral depth. Um, but it is the case that, you know, we have institutions that speak in those languages and faith traditions and religious communities traditionally do, or many of them do, and are still 
within their own circles still a power. Um, I, I don't remember what percentage it is, but a, a huge percentage of Americans consider themselves faith-affiliated, so religious language speaks to them. And speaking, this is more on strategic lines, we have the labor movement and we have faith communities. There aren't a lot of other institutions as institutions left to really, as the building blocks of a movement. Of course, there are popular movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too and others, but in terms of social institutions, the faith community is a given and it has been the backbone of many social movements like the civil rights movement and somewhat the anti-war movement and others. Yeah, no, it's interesting to think about communities that are organized around religion or around labor or around identity. I think it seems like the currency today is more identity-based typed organizing, uh, which bleeds into class and all that type of things. But I I guess I wanted to clarify my question a little bit. which I think you answered quite well, was not, not that moral language is the sole like dominion of religious communities, but I think one of the things I appreciate about DSA and sort of more leftist uh, spaces is, is the uh, willingness to use moral language to talk about social and political uh, oppression and inequality instead of technocratic language or, you know, sort of political sort of language. Something that I think the religious right does very well right. in making politics moral. And I think the religious life could make some progress in that. I, I think that's very important. It's about connecting with people's most deeply held values. It's about connecting with their communities. It's conne- about connecting with their day-to-day lives. And faith plays a role in all those things. Uh, I, I wouldn't want to completely jettison political ideology or um, theory. I think that's important, especially for people who are working in a political context as a blueprint or a roadmap, whatever you want to say. But it um, for people in the faith community, as in Judaism, it's the prophetic tradition. In Christianity, it's some of the social gospel. That really is the moral language and also a vision of what a better society could look like because that really is equally important that our vision isn't limited to what we have now, which... Yeah, is, is awful. We need a vision of what we're going for, what our ultimate goal is, what we, how we want to transform ourselves and our societies, and religion also provides that at its best. Yes, yes, as opposed to a pure critique right. of what's wrong. Yes. When you mentioned that obviously you're a DSA member, in fact, you're on the board, if I recall, of the Religious Socialism kind of working group, coalition, yeah. I don't know what the technical ter- term is these days. When did you, how did you get involved with DSA and when was that? Well, that's a good story. Um, my very first uh, semester at Cornell, I, I already was involved a little bit. I grew up with the background of the Vietnam War, the civil rights movement, but I was too young to be an active participant. I came to university at the beginning of the first wave of the anti-apartheid movement and anti-racism activity on campus, and that's really what engaged me politically at the very beginning. But with, I'm pretty sure it was the first semester I was there, Michael Harrington came and spoke, and I went to hear him. Mm-hmm. And he just put together all the pieces that were already there into a coherent framework, and that framework was called democratic socialism. Mm. I guess I didn't have the words or the 
political vocabulary or know enough about that lineage yet. Um, but he really put that together, and I remember very vividly how on the one side he was attacked by conservative students, and on the other side he was baited by like ultra-leftist students, because here he's talking about transforming the Democratic Party and mm. working within the Democratic Party and socializing it and institutions. So it's like a long-term game, and they're saying, oh, we need revolution now. And I remember how he stood his ground to both, and presented what to me was just a completely convincing and appealing vision of a political, not just goal, but the way to get there. And I, I think I, that really set me on the road. I, I was out of the country a bit after that, after I was um, done with undergraduate school. But when I came back to New York, one of the first things I did was re-up my DSA membership. And I've been on and off active for 25 years now, wow. reactivated. Tell me, uh, for listeners, explain a little bit as to who Michael Harrington is. Michael Harrington was probably one of the preeminent socialists of the 20th century in America. He wrote back in the 60s, early 60s, a book called The Other America, which at a time when Americans were enjoying their post-war prosperity, he pointed to the fact that there was vast hidden and not so hidden poverty that persisted in America. And this was a bit of a shock for the public. And to some extent, it helped drive Johnson's great society programs, programs aimed at poverty reduction, particularly the urban poor. So he really was a public intellectual. There are some famous videos that are worth watching him debating William Buckley about their their competing social policy ideas. But he was the founder of DSOC, the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, which ultimately became DSA. Mm. And he was a charismatic figure. He came out, at a, out of a Catholic background himself. So faith was not far from his thinking, though I don't know that he would have called himself a person of faith. But he certainly spoke the language of it. So he had the ideology, he had a vision, and in his person, he embodied what he was describing. I know in previous interviews, you've also talked about the role of Daniel Berrigan yeah. and being a spiritual, also political role model. What, who were your role models that catalyzed your radicalization and also in some ways journey into greater religious involvement? Well, I've been very blessed to have teachers from many different traditions and many faiths and many communities. Um, you mentioned one, and I often say that I would not be a rabbi, and I certainly wouldn't be the rabbi that I am if it weren't for the fact of Father Daniel Berrigan, mm -hmm. who, if people know, was sort of one of the founders, if you want to say, of the Catholic left in America, who took very dramatic and risky acts of resistance to the Vietnam War and then later to nuclear weapons. He was jailed for long stretches for doing that. His witness, as my Catholic friends would say, profoundly impacted my thinking that it was not enough to give sermons or demonstrate, but you really had to take a risk for the things you believed in and you had to act on them in a, in a very powerful way. Sometimes it was symbolic, but sometimes it was more than that. 
But what it always was, in the case of Dan Berrigan, Phil Berrigan, and that community, was galvanizing. I was living in Philadelphia at the time of the Plowshares 8, when he and his brother and others broke into a General Electric nuclear weapons plant and smashed components for nuclear warheads with hammers and poured blood on them. And I was part of a sort of support community around that. And I was very much involved with a group called the Brandywine Peace Community, which was a Catholic, radical, pacifist Catholic community the entire time that I was in rabbinical school. So th this was really formative to my thinking. There were, there, there, of course, there were Jewish leaders who had similar influence, but I'm talking right now just about the Catholics. I want to get into the yeah. his Jewish socials and all that stuff, but talk to me about some of those like most vivid memories you have being involved with really active forms of not just resistance, but in some ways sabotage, so to speak? Well, I, I never personally took part in a plowshares action, which are the really risky ones where people destroy what Dan Berrigan would call unproperty, that property is what's proper. Weapons that are designed to kill millions of people are not proper, so they're not property per se, but at any rate, I never took part in those, but I did do many acts of civil disobedience with that community at that same facility, walk-ons, pray-ins, was arrested dozens of times there. And every time, it's, it's a very hard thing to describe, but when you do an action like that in the faith context, you really feel like you're stepping over a line that isn't just a police line, it's like crossing human law into God's law, almost. Mm. That in the same way that all laws are not moral, yeah. you're transgressing an immoral law and going into a realm that's beyond that, in the same way that King intentionally violated segregationist laws because those were immoral laws, so he moved from the, the realm of what's defined by the courts to what's defined by God or what's defined by religious ethics. And that you really feel that powerfully in those instances. And some of the most powerful religious moments in my life were in those settings. The idea that there is a higher authority, yes. even beyond the highest authorities here on earth. Yeah. I know in the interview I listened to, you talked about how you were not particularly involved with the Hillel when you were in college. Yeah. So what, how did you decide to become a rabbi? Well, that was a, a fortuitous meeting of the right rabbis, um, mm. particularly one Rabbi Lynn Gottlieb, who was a rabbi here in New York then, who was a, a rabbi to the deaf. She was one of the first women rabbis. She was very progressive, very politically engaged, and uh, if anyone was my rabbi, I would say it was her. Also, people like Rabbi Arthur Waskow, whose political involvement goes back to the civil rights era. Rabbi Everett Gendler, who's it, been... At, what seminary, rabbinical seminary were you at, just for oh, people I that have context? I went to the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, which is just outside Philadelphia. And Reconstructionism is the fourth and I would say least known denomination of American Judaism. It was really created or evolved in the context of 20th century American Judaism specifically. 
unlike most of the other denominations. And I interrupted your lineage of talking about different Jewish role models. Oh, yeah. Well, those were the most important ones. The other was, as I was saying, Rabbi Everett Gendler, who's now 90, still active. He probably more than anyone has explored in theory and practice the whole within Judaism, the tradition of nonviolence and nonviolent direct action. Um, And then there have been other rabbis who've been on the front lines of civil rights and human rights struggles. And also there is, you talked about uh, Jewish traditions of nonviolence, but there also is a very rich history of Jewish socialists and yes. socialism. Could you expand a little bit more on that? Well, that is crucial because um, Jews have been part of progressive and radical social movements, certainly going back to the 18th century. And in nineteenth, the end of the 19th century into the 20th century, in Eastern Europe, there was a mass proletarian Jewish socialist movement called the Bund, the Jewish Workers' Bund, which was all about being part of a broader socialist movement, at the same time preserving their Jewish identity, which for them was a secular Yiddish cultural-based identity. It wasn't a religious identity, though it was very much shaped by religious concepts, and not uncoincidentally, many of the founders and key leaders were children of rabbis, Hmm. so that informed their thinking. And there is a very powerful current of messianism in Judaism, looking toward an age of redemption, and that, I think, in secular forms, plays out in Jewish socialist traditions. I Personally, I would consider myself an inheritor of the Bundist tradition. I, I guess I'm a Bundist... Bundist rabbi, if there's such a thing. And did you grow up learning about this? Like, how did you no, f- I, I start? Lo- what was it like to learn about that tradition for the first time, I suppose? It was completely eye-opening. Mm. Um, I certainly never learned about it in Sunday school. Yeah. I never even learned about it when I studied uh, history of religion courses or modern politics courses. It really took people who were already in that milieu or came out of that milieu, their grandparents or were students of the Bund or Yiddishists who really pointed me toward that. And Jews for Racial Economic Justice was a big part of that. I lived in London for six years and I was part of a group called the Jewish Socialist Group there. And they really were a physical connection to the Bund because they had among their members 80 and 90 year old Mm. people who were Bundists in Europe before the war and survived. Um, And it was incredibly inspiring to hear their stories of being active Bundists when the Bund was a mass movement, not just a few elderly survivors. Why do you think it was such a mass movement then? And why do you feel like it maybe doesn't have the same force today? Well, it's largely demographic. There was a mass Jewish proletariat then, Mm. um, a mass Jewish working class uh, in the Pale of Settlement, the area of the Russian Empire that Jews were confined in. Um, They were, the the occupations they could engage in were restricted. um, So there was largely different forms of manual labor, skilled labor, but it, it was a proletariat that, really hasn't existed in a mass way for the Jewish community. I mean, many 
if not most, were killed during the Holocaust, and then the ones who made it to the United States were now two, three generations removed from that mass Jewish proletariat. There's obviously there's still it still exists, but Jews have succeeded in America in a way that there is not the same kind of base, a pro mass proletariat base. If you find Jews in the labor movement now, it's usually as organi young organizers or higher-ups. It's not the people being organized. Mm. Uh, d different groups of immigrants now have taken that place. Yeah, a sort of a change in material right. status, yes. position. Demographic change, yeah. immigration change, all sorts of things. Yeah. So my tradition is Christianity, and one of the things I've been grappling with, especially in the wake of like the 2016 election, is that I think some was a real confrontation with the fact that whatever Christianity in America looks like today looks quite different, perhaps from like the early Christians in which Christianity was like a smaller sect. Yeah. And talking about demographical changes, we went from like on the peripheries of the empire to like the center of the empire where we are today. So on one hand, I hear what you're saying in terms of like there are many elements of our tradition specifically that do call us to higher ideals. On the other hand, the large majority of Actually, the numbers are decreasing because more and more people of color are uh, starting to right. be constituents of sort of the church. But at this point, the people hold money and power, let's say, within the church at large, seem very far removed from the ideals of our tradition. So I guess what, given those changes, uh, why do you still have hope in religion? Um, well, I, I don't have a naive hope. Religion sure. is a human institution. It's flawed. There's no shortage of racism, sexism, you name it, homophobia within religious institutions. It's not like the challenges are all out there and in the faith sure. community we've got it all together. Far from it. Um, but I, again, I do think the power of faith tradition, the, the faith voice, the, the prophetic voice is one that really can be transformative. Um, I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the life of people around me in communities that I've been part of. And I don't think there are many other institutions capable of doing that. I wish there were many others. I mean, some mm. community-based organizations and some ideologically-based like DSA. But that kind of power, transformative power, I think the faith community, again, at its best and... Perhaps I'm really talking about the progressive wing of the faith community, however you broadly define that. Um, I think that that really does tap a power that is um, unifying and allows us to work and risk in a way that if we're cut off from it, we, we're, we're cut off. It's like not having the batteries to really spiritually run your run a movement. Um, yeah. You know, I think one of the interesting questions with regards to demographics is that for a while, you know, leftist organizations and religious organizations or labor organizations were experiencing a, a similar type of decline in yeah. numbers. Um, and I think that phenomenon still plays out for mm -hmm. religious organizations. But interestingly, DSA has sort of 
at least within our corner, reverse those trends a little bit. We've, yeah. I don't know how many members we have now, probably over 20, 50,000. 50, yeah, like wow, that. I think, yeah. where were we <laughs> three know, years ago? It's, it's uh, much, much less. <laughs> yeah, of, yeah it's, it's, uh, it's remarkable. And, you know, as a friend of mine who has gone to church a couple of times with me, and he's like, you know, I don't think like religion does it for me, but I feel very alive in a political rally. Um, when I'm out there campaigning for you know X Y Z person I believe in or policies I believe in, do you see a, a shift in that uh, where people find their sort of energy for, to transcendent energy, for lack of a better word, from religious organizations to um, you know organizations like the DSA or something that also has a very strong set of ideals but perhaps don't have. Um, spiritual language to talk right. about it. Well, I think people find it in different places. Um, I think, again, what, what both communities have at their best, um, social secular social change movements and the faith community are ideals that people can really use as a, a, guide, a guiding star, um, a community of believers, if you want to put it that way, um, and concrete ways to live your faith, whether your faith is democratic socialism or uh, traditional religious faith. We both have songs. Right. We, we have cultures, and <laughs> yeah. that's important. International and, we that. and, and local. And we have community. Yeah. Yes. And community fights against the most disempowering um, force, which is part of American culture, which is rampant individualism and feeling disconnected and feeling disempowered and mm. feeling demobilized, having a community, whether it's a community of faith or an ideological community or political community, that pushes against that. And um, without that kind of community rooting, the it's just too overwhelming to take on social change at work. Yeah. Huh. That's... I'll have to think about that, the point about community. Um, to circle back to the original thing we talked about, about religion and labor, what I know initially, in some ways, labor unions were obviously much stronger, right. and also I think a bit more integrated with, well not maybe integrated, but sort of stronger partnerships perhaps with like religious communities. How have you seen the evolution of those relationships? Well, first you're right that both are seeing real decline, except in the religious side and the more, uh, for want of a better word, fundamental mm -hmm. side, and whatever the faith, Christianity, Judaism, those are growing. But mainline Protestants, uh, Jews, there's a lot of assimilation, people falling away. The now more than 30-year war on the labor movement has shrunk its numbers down mm. to historic lows. But there have been times... You can go back to the 30s, points in the 60s, when there's been a very intentional partnership between the faith community and the labor movement. And that's when I would, again, my perspective, both were acting at their highest ideals when the labor movement was really being a social movement to protect the rights of all workers, not just about you know getting better sure. contracts for their members, though that is important. And on the other side, that the faith community was taking its prophetic charge seriously about civil rights, about racial justice, about um, ending the war in Vietnam, uh, other points. But that did fall away. I think we're at a point now where we're trying to figure out how to rebuild that. Um, 
there was a moment about 20 years ago when uh, John Sweeney was the head of the AFL-CIO, came from a very strong Catholic background, and he was very intentional about building relationships to faith communities and doing interfaith, more multi-faith partnerships with the labor movement. That somewhat has waned since he left the scene. Hmm. But there are groups like mine. There, there's group Interfaith Worker Justice in Chicago, of which we're affiliated, which has like 40 local multi-faith groups around the country that do work with the labor movement. How, so, ma- how many groups does uh, your coalition work with, faith groups? Well, when you mean groups, we work with a number of unions. We work with Muslims, Jews, Christians. I guess how, how many religious congregations do you feel like are regularly involved in? Hard to say. It tends to vary depending on the campaign because some campaigns touch communities in different sure. ways. We've been involved recently working with the Taxi Workers Alliance mm. because of the challenges that Uber and other yeah. app-based uh, ride services have devastated the taxi industry and the livelihoods of of mostly an immigrant workforce. So there we've gone into the Sikh community or the Hindu and Muslim communities where most of the workers are drawn from. So it, it depends on the campaign. But uh, I'd say, we, you know, it's, it's certainly hundreds and at best thousands, and sometimes some are more active than others. And New York, you know, on the whole, I don't want to overgeneralize, but You've got a lot of progressive faith communities in New York of every stripe from a, a, a coalition of progressive Hindus to many mm-hmm. left, left or progressive Jewish organizations, Catholic, mainline Protestant. I mean, you can almost trip over, I joke with friends, progressive clergy and progressive congregations in New York. In a way, if you were living in some other places, you'd have to... St- really search to find them here where there's almost so many of us we we have to figure out how do we really be more than the sum of our parts and and work together in a way that amplifies our strengths so concretely on a operational day-to-day take the taxi campaign what what does organizing in that context look like well that what they needed was they were passing legislation through city council so they wanted faith community voices of support for this legislation, which would regulate Uber, which has not been done in too many places. And Mm -hmm. Uber was pouring millions of dollars into opposing this. So they wanted, again, the moral voice, and they wanted the communities that were involved, the immigrant worker communities, their own faith leaders to step forward, as well as allies. And we did that. We put together a letter of about 100 faith leaders supporting this legislation, we went to their rallies, we testified at the city council, things like that. It takes different forms mm. depending on the campaign, but you know, it's to engage as fully as possible faith allies to the workers. We, we don't organize the workers. That isn't our job. Our job right. is to stand with them and to amplify their power and to bring the force of the religious community onto their side and tip the scales more in their direction as opposed to corporate interests or financial interests. 
And what about when it comes to the DSA specifically? You've mentioned, I remember being in the, f- the first renewed religious socialism oh, yeah. working group <clears throat> meeting. You were there and we kind of did it. We did a go around and introduced ourselves. Like, where do you see things growing or emerging and progressing when it comes to DSA, but also specifically the religious socialism contingent within it? Well, I have to say it's, this is a pretty new thing for me. Mm-hmm. For me in the past, my religious organizing has been sort of in one corner and I was a DSA member in another corner and other political activities in another corner. So this is sort of pulling them all together and it's a work in progress. And I'm just as curious and uh, interested and hopeful about what's possible there. There are certainly no shortage of religionists who see themselves as socialists of one sort or another. There's no, no shortage of socialists who are people of faith. And if we can harness these things and make it a meaningful part of the overall project of DSA, I think it has a lot of potential. I don't know exactly what that is yet. What would be an ideal outcome for you? I mean, because you've talked about there is a fair number of progressive organizing already happening. Yeah. Where do you feel like I guess a religious socialism working group could make some a unique contribution. Well, certainly a piece of it is that we are, by definition, socialists. Yes. And explicit about that. And we have a socialist vision of what a transformed society could be. Not not all groups have that. Not all progressives mm-hmm. have that. Not Certainly not all faith groups do. Some use more... Not not vague terms, but you know the beloved community sure. or so, so democratic socialism puts a little more substance and a and a a little more analytic framework to it without it being dogmatic or orthodox. I I think it outlines what we're talking about a little bit more, and to me makes the vision even more compelling. Whether we're talking about universal health care or democratized uh, an economy that's really for all people, not just the 1%. A socialist analysis really adds to that. I've been um, pretty inspired by the New Sanctuary Coalition. Yes. I participate in one of their like Jericho walks around yeah. the, sort of the ICE headquarters in yes. New York City, where you walked around seven times and prayed for the building to collapse but also just in a more metaphorical level the walls that we put well, up between it, ourselves that's and our an important example I, I actually was involved also when i was in rabbinical school with the first sanctuary movement in the mm. early 80s yeah. and at that point that was about all of the refugees from central america that were coming here because of the wars that ronald reagan's administration was sponsoring in central america his quote anti-communist wars in nicaragua and el salvador and the the faith community felt called to respond to this refugee crisis that the U.S. through its foreign policy was causing through its military policy, mm. military intervention. And that was a multi-faith effort. I was part of a group called Jews Concerned About Central America, and we worked with Methodists and Catholics and you know many different denominations to provide physical sanctuary as well as other forms of. Um, spiritual support, uh, material support to refugees. So that's that's now 35 years ago. So mm. there's already a long lineage of that particular sure. formation, and it's it, it's both important and necessary that it's still going, but 
in some way it's like incredible that it that still we, is that it's yeah. still we we still need that and, and in some ways we i am um, i interviewed one of the priests who's involved in the new sanctuary coalition a few uh last year but we spent a good amount of time talking about the sort of context of American imperialism that has led to, in some ways, the yeah. exodus, whether like war, like straight up like right. aiding in war or like economic um, uh, sort of interventions. It's interesting to me that I feel like that mode, that context was very clear, like, of, you know, this, we're providing sanctuary in part because we, we bear responsibility as Americans to, That's you know, taking people who we have displaced. It seems like that mode of discourse has is not as salient as perhaps it w- once was during the first century movement. I don't know if yeah, you've noticed that. Yeah, I too. think that's true. Then it was so direct. I mean, yes. it was U.S. on the, the U.S. arming the Contras, U.S. soldiers. Um, it was clear the role that the U.S. was playing in these civil sure. wars in Central America. It was America. in the newspapers. Right, it was right. in the newspapers. People could speak Spanish. It wasn't like the war in Vietnam, which was further away most people couldn't speak vietnamese there was a cultural and religious divide that made it a little harder sure. to bridge this was literally in our backyard which was part of the problem the old monroe doctrine and you know it goes back mm-hmm. to, um but i think exactly what you say is right that these things are not unrelated there was a saying of the indian workers association i remember very clearly in london we are here meaning here in london here in britain because you were there you colonialists were in our land ruling over us so don't all of a sudden start you know raising complaints about oh we're being overwhelmed by immigrants or immigrants are taking our jobs or you know using immigrants as scapegoats because you caused the problem in the same way NAFTA undermined Mexican farmers' ability to sustain themselves in their Mm -hmm. communities. So what are you going to do? You're going to go somewhere where you can survive, which is across the northern border into the United States. We caused that problem. Yeah, and I think to tie everything back together, one of the the unique things I appreciate about religious traditions is... Uh, emphasis on history and remembering sort of where we came from we're not you know the latest greatest people on earth we have like a lineage in some ways that is a very american problem to have that type of historical amnesia but perhaps as religious figures we can also help america recall its own history hopefully again at its best at its best yes the underside is that you know the colonizing mission of the United States yeah. all that, back that, to the that, beginning that, is, inter- is intertwined with religion as mm-hmm. well. Colon- what, what we did to the indigenous people on this, um, on this continent and uh, the, the biblical justifications for slavery and, you know, religion is there, which the, the abolitionists were quoting the same Bible as the uh, slaveholders. So, it's a matter of interpretation. It's a matter of social engagement with the texts mm-hmm. for a progressive end. It's not the text is not, I don't believe, going to tell us what to do in and of itself. We have to read the text through a lens of what is our social context, what is, what have we learned about um, progressive insights into society, how society works from many sources, from feminism, from I don't know, psychoanalysis from right. Marxism from, you know, we, we're not just reading a text per se anymore. 
most of us are not. Yes, no, that's a very good reminder. I can go on and on. I have to, we have to probably should wrap up the yeah. conversation. Thank you so much for spending time with us. My pleasure. You know, when you do this work day to day, it becomes sort of like the grunt work. Yes. And it's, it's both a pleasure and a necessity to step back and think, hey, why am I doing this? Yes, yes. And be forced to think through anew why you're doing it and what are the ideals that you're trying mm. to hold up. Because they can get lost in the shuffle. There's, you know, we're all over busy, even over busy in doing progressive mm -hmm. work, but we have to remind ourselves and remind each other of our highest ideals. And that's what groups like DSA and hopefully what our faith communities are for. So thank you. Thank you, Michael. My pleasure. And that was Rabbi Michael Feinberg. He is the executive director of the Greater New York Labor and Religion Coalition. And I hope you found that conversation really interesting. The part that sticks out to me the most is his distinction between multi-faith and interfaith and his argument that religious activism is the strongest when it is grounded in its particularities and its traditions and its stories, while at the same time obviously being engaged in something more transcendent and more universal than you know your particular communities. And when he was talking, I think, especially in light of recent news, I've been thinking a lot about Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society, Ohio's, which has been in the news because it's been targeted by Robert Bowers, the terrorist who shot up in the Pittsburgh synagogue, who posted online about how Ohio's is helping to bring in invaders or killers into America. And I just think it's the history of the organization is a beautiful encapsulation, I think, of what Michael was talking about the model of religious activism. From my understanding, um, and this was told to me through by a rabbi, it began as a society to help predominantly Jewish, Eastern European, and Soviet Jews uh, resettle in the United States, and for a long time dealt with a lot of anti-Semitic uh, resistance. And after World War II, the, the mood changed a little bit, and it became more um, you know, accepted and became more involved in settling, for instance, Southeast Asian refugees during the Vietnam War and various wars in Asia. And in recent years, has been involved in helping a lot of Muslim Syrian refugees resettle in the U.S. So it's, and obviously it still helps a lot of Soviet Jews, or Jews from the former Soviet Union. But I think it's a perfect example of what it means to be grown in your history and your story. And because of that, instead of in spite of that, have the resources to help and advocate for people who share very similar stories. So I, I think of Highs as an organization that I think exemplifies a lot of what I think Robert Michael Feynman was discussing in our conversation today. So I hope you found that also really interesting. Let us know what you think about the episode. We're on Facebook and Twitter uh, for Religious Socials and Podcasts on Facebook and Religious Social Pod on Twitter. We're also on Patreon. Thank you so much for those who have supported us in any way, really, um, by sharing our episodes on social media or by supporting us financially. That really, we're amazed that people give us money. Thank you so much. It helps pay the costs of producing this podcast and doing these interviews. So really appreciate it and stay tuned for the next podcast. Bye.